Welcome to the Leading and Learning Through Safety podcast, where we discuss the technical and people side of safety. Safety should be your primary leadership tool for discovering more about your people and culture. Your host is Dr. Mark French, also known as the Safety Dude. Mark is a credentialed, experienced, and passionate professional with experience in automotive, food, chemical, nuclear, e-commerce, and energy sectors. He is going to share information and anecdotes from years of experience in the people side of safety based on industrial and organizational psychological theories. Safety is so much more than a technical skill. It is a motivational need that defines the culture of your organization. Employee safety is a meaningful business practice that makes a direct impact on everyone through direct behavioral engagement. That is why your organization should be using safety as a key method to learn about your culture and lead your teams. Thanks for joining this episode as we talk through current issues in people management and how they impact our everyday workplace. Welcome to this episode of the Leading and Learning Through Safety podcast. Hi, I'm Mark and I am so happy that you've joined me again for another episode. So last week, we used the entire episode and talked about heat stress and OSHA's emphasis programs and what they're doing and that we may see some law soon at some point. It feels like they're going at a snail's pace, but they are moving forward and doing it. And again, a heat wave continues to kind of hit parts of the U.S., where I live in particular, is being hit. We've had numerous days where the heat index has been into the hundreds, with the temperatures already hitting 95 to 100, and then add humidity on top of that, a lack of breeze and lots of direct sunlight, and you have a high chance of heat stress and issues that come along with heat. And when I was looking back and reflecting on, we did a lot of talking about the need and the passion and the cause behind needing something more in heat stress from OSHA. We need help. We can't, and we can't continue alone without guidance. And what I realized, I didn't really put a lot of data or I didn't put a lot of information behind the whole idea of what are we doing and what does this regulation look like? So I actually went to the, the OSHA page. I want to give you a little bit more. I want to go through it together about what does it look like that what OSHA is doing? And they posted their first information to the proposed rule. And of course, regulations.gov. If you love reading stuff like that, Uh, this was from late last year and it hasn't changed a lot, but they're still kind of in the data gathering phase and it, It still amazes me that when we talk about regulations and we talk about OSHA, they have to do it this way. I don't think they really have to, but I think that's the climate of what we have for safety regulations is they start off by talking about the background of it. And then they move into like, hey, how many people have died? And it's every OSHA regulation and the morbid way of looking at it is every OSHA regulation is written in blood. There has to be so many fatalities before we're going to have a law about it. And they talk about the, the data that shows all these injuries, all these fatalities. They cite research that says this is probably low, that it's being 
underreported. They walk through the structure and work arrangements of agriculture, outdoor work, construction, and then your indoor work, even like some chemical industries that are, uh, are steel manufacturing and items that are indoor, very hot exothermic items where heat's everywhere and causing issues. They go into geographic region of the South, uh, looking at where climate is maybe a problem. They even have an, an issue in here about climate change. So they have a discussion point asking questions and wanting to seek more data about could this be continuing to get worse or what is the long-term implication. They do have the idea of like, why do we need this when they can cite general duty? Interestingly enough, and as normal, they go through the idea that they've tried to cite it and it's really hard to enforce that they've tried to use things from the ACGIH. They've tried to use NIOSH. They've tried to use other scientific information that's available meteorologically, the NOAA, uh, the National Weather Service, and they continue, they cite many times where they have been overturned in the courts and not able to cite and fine uh, for heat stress under general duty using these prominent scientific methods, which is part of the problem, is that there's disagreement, and not huge disagreement, ultimately, there needs to, you need to do something for your people if it's hot outside, and I'm boggles my mind it surprises me every time that we have to say that and i'm sure as a safety professional or someone who cares about safety you scratch your head too and you're like you hear people go oh we should be concerned about heat it gets hot in our workplace in the summer <laughs> and you go oh, really anyway i i always find that humorous that every year sometimes there are people that their eyes like, like a deer in a headlights. I'll say uh, as <laughs> that that's what it looks like when you say it gets hot in the summer and we have to protect our team because the heat stress anyway. So they looked at applicable standards that are in place. There's not a lot there training. They can kind of touch on it. And so then they go to the petitions for rulemaking and what are they looking at doing? And of course, the first thing and something really nice that they can do is in the state plans, there are some states that do have some heat stress laws on the book, California, Minnesota, Oregon, and then Washington has an emergency rule that has been put into effect in California that covers the outdoors, Minnesota, Oregon. Oregon indoor and outdoor uh, Washington is outdoor and they look at some of the things that they're doing in those states they have a nice graph that goes through it of where does it start and a lot of it is like 80 degrees Fahrenheit you should start really looking at what's going on in your workplace and then actions start somewhere around 90 to 95 and in some cases it doesn't even start till heat hits 100 degrees Fahrenheit before you start taking heat protections and you look at some of the protections that have to be provided. And it to me, they don't go, go far enough, in my personal opinion, from what I have done for heat index and from when you look at wet bulb, bulb globe temperatures and some other protections that can be in place. So, for instance, one is like you have to have a shady spot that they can go or a place that has a rest place. The rest periods are sometimes an extra 10 minutes for every two hours of work. There has to be a buddy system or a communication system and an emergency notification system. 
There has to be regular checks on the health of the team members that are working. Those are some of the basics that are being done. It's better than not having any law at all. Agreed. Should be doing something. But I'm not sure that it goes far enough because in some heat, I have found that it's really like 15 to 20 minutes of work and you need to be taking a short break, a regulated, like stay hydrated break. Not that it's official, I guess, 10 minute rest period. But is that a moment that you take two to five minutes and you rehydrate? So these frequent breaks, micro breaks that sometimes people forget to take or are unable to take. Uh, are important. And so these official breaks are going to the shade, airflow, maybe having an air-conditioned room or, or somewhere that has a fan or something that would give better protection. They do look at engineering controls, like how do you have air conditioning, increased ventilation, evaporative cooling, how would that be effective and where should it be used? And a lot of this is questions. They're seeking data. And then how do you validate, how do you verify that someone is acclimatized to heat? Physiological monitoring and worker monitoring, how often should you be checking on people? How do you check on people? What are the signs and symptoms? And are you checking those off a list? Like, I spoke to Mark. He did not exhibit any of these things. His water bottle was being used, and he's taken his extra break. Is there someone that is really and truly checking up and caring for their team? And then finally, they talk about emergency planning. Is there a way to communicate for emergency services? And do people train on it? Ultimately, what we're looking at is protection. And this is where this goes further. So let's chat a little bit more and take it a little bit broader scope in the next half of the Leading and Learning through Safety Podcast. It's time to rehumanize the workplace. Having the means and methods to engage and empower your team is more important than ever. Fortunately, TSD Amalgamated is here for you. They focus on better understanding your organization's culture through team building, safety auditing, personal assessments, leadership training, and compliance-based systems. Their staff has the training, knowledge, and experience to help you achieve safety compliance and beyond. Visit tsdamalgamated.com for more information. Welcome back to the second half of our Leading and Learning through Safety Podcast. We started off talking about the actual OSHA regulation that they're working on. So this is in regulations.gov, taking a high-level view because I felt I didn't do a good job or I didn't do any job of actually discussing what is something we can do for heat stress. And so continue that discussion and looking at What is it that OSHA is trying to do here? And of course, the next phase that they look at and the final part of this whole item is the cost-benefit analysis. Is it going to cost employers too much in time or in effort? The impacts on small entities, which in a lot of times, these small agriculture, small construction, small crews uh, are the ones mostly affected. So it's something they have to really look at the diversity of our business entity that there can't be a lot of exclusions when we look at heat stress because it would be some of the smaller, it's big places too, but it's a lot of small places that would be affected. And again, this one to me seems uh, very, something that really should be there because when I think about right now, we are under a heat advisory where I am. 
am I'm avoiding doing basic yard work at this point because it's so hot. And to imagine that we would be having people go into the workplace and not have any additional protections seems cruel at the, at the very least. And I have done in early in my life, I discovered that farm work is tough. And so farmers have a tough job and a job that is needed and absolutely important. And it's very timely because you, you have a certain time that when their crops are ready to be harvested, they have to be harvested, understood. And that's important. And you work hard, but you also frequent breaks, frequent hydration and times where you just go get under the shade or find a tree to get under been there in early in my teenage years, earning money in a rural area. It's important that we do those things and we focus on it and we keep ourselves aware of it. And we're checking on people as simple as the idea is of working together as a group and checking on each other and having a means and methods of giving someone a break when they need it enforcing it, not just like, oh, I'll be all right. I'm going to keep going. No, take the break. The 10 minutes invested in the break pays off indefinitely when you're protected and can continue to be productive. You pace yourself. But if it's your first time out there and you don't know that and you've never been trained and you don't have someone checking up on you, it doesn't happen. We can only manage what we measure and we can only do it if we're managing it. It's a circular conversation. So we talk about that. And this goes into further what I have been really trying to think about in what I have been doing is looking at the idea of how do we measure risk? How do we know that it is risk? So the one of the questions I posted on my Twitter page, and that's at Dr. Safety Dude 11, check me out on Twitter, shameless plug for Twitter there and my account. But the question I asked, and this came up when I was doing just kind of a thought process of my own, walking through something I had discovered and was talking to someone, is when does a hazard become normal and a normal piece of the job that you're doing every day? How many times do you do it? How many times do you encounter it? How many times do you bring it up to a supervisor or bring it up to an organization and nothing changes, and it now becomes just part of your work. In some cases, you could call it normalization of deviance, uh, but in some cases, it's a forced cultural approach because the culture isn't addressing it. So you come across a hazard. You know it's a hazard, and you start working, and you raise your hand. You say, I'm not sure how to do this. They go, no, just do it this way, and you just get it done. You go, okay, I'll get it done, and you do your best to be safe. And you do it your way. Someone else has their way. You don't know that everyone's kind of encountering the same hazard. And you just keep encountering it and doing it. And maybe someday down the road an injury happens. And instead of it being like, wow, we should have known about that. And we should have protected against that. Well, that's just part of the job. We've always been doing it. We've always just had to deal with that part of the job. And didn't feel like bringing it up because... It just happens all the time and it's always present and it's always in our mind. Well, maybe there is mitigation. Maybe we haven't thought about it, but in the case of what I'm looking at, it's not that we've done a hazard analysis. This is one of those items that let's say it's, it's a hazard that needs mitigation, but because it's never been mitigated before it becomes normal. And it goes back to the Krauss bell 
their analysis of decision making and safety outcomes that when was the decision made that we would work in that? When was the decision made maybe not to have the right equipment? When was the decision made that it was never communicated? Maybe we didn't know. And where do we go from there? And how, how do you get the culture to reset? How do you punch that reset button, that redo button, and you have people look at it with a fresh set of eyes and find it? Because your trained safety person, one for every 500 people, one for every 200 people, one for whatever the ratio is you have for your organization, what are the chances of them finding that hazard as they're doing their normal scope of work? What about other people who can see it? How do you punch the reset button to raise your hand and say, you know, maybe we should rethink it. And that's the cultural aspect that I started scratching my head and going, hmm, not so sure. I'm not really for certain on how that should work and how we can do that effectively. Because we may be saying, hey, we new new methods, new ways, speak up, tell us, help us find the answers. And yet, if it's just a normal part of the job, it doesn't feel like something that should be just called out or brought up. So what are the methods? And I'm, I'm probably looking for solutions here as much as I have anything to offer because I've not found that yet. It is systemic. It is long-term. To change a culture, that message has to be reinforced no less. And even the most aggressive research, a cultural change, doesn't happen in less than six months. So you have that risk. You're doing communication. You're trying. You And when you really look for transformation, and it's very aggressive transformation, the culture may not follow for six months, at least. And it's usually longer because most people can't uh, invest the, the time and effort that goes with that aggressive cultural change. And so that message has to be pushed and pushed and pushed that, no, don't accept it. If it even feels risky, just tell us. Maybe we can find a way. Maybe we know a better way. Maybe we want a better way. Maybe some of us never knew that was happening as frequently as it was and or that the hazard was as present as it really is. We have to work on that together as a team. Thanks for joining me on this episode. Really enjoyed the discussion. Glad we were able to go back, take a second look at that heat stress standard and, and bigger. How do we look at that risk? How do we categorize it a risk? How do we talk about it? Thanks for joining me. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. And until next time we chat, stay safe. listening to the Leading and Learning Through Safety podcast. Join the online conversation at www.markafrench.com. All opinions expressed on the podcast are solely attributed to the individual and not affiliated with any business entity. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes. 
it is not a substitute for proper policy, appropriate training, or legal advice. This has been the Leading and Learning Through Safety podcast.